Last week, we began a new series called Because He Lives, and this whole series is to celebrate the impact of Christ's resurrection on our lives today. And we talked about last week that we know Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago in the past, and we know that Jesus will raise all of the dead when He returns in the future, but we're focusing on how Christ's resurrection impacts us now, today. What is true? Because Jesus is alive. And one answer, our answer last week, was this. Because Jesus lives, we can press on. We can endure. We can strain ahead even when we are bogged down. And that virtue of endurance is so important because life is challenging. Life entails so much suffering and difficulty But Christ, by the power of His resurrection, enables us to press on. And this week, we're looking at another answer to that question, and I wish we could talk in detail about Jeremiah 31 and in detail about Romans chapter 8. Uh, If you grew up in church, you've probably heard this chapter before. Honestly, I'm kind of jealous of you if you haven't heard this chapter from Romans because it's one of the best chapters in Scripture. Uh, But we just have enough time to focus on one aspect of the passage— and this week we're going to focus on two, two verses in particular uh, in chapter 8, and we're going to put Romans chapter 8, verse 8 on the screen right now. Those controlled by the flesh cannot please God. Those controlled by the flesh cannot please God. And then in the same chapter, verse 4, the righteousness of requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Okay, I'm going to spend most of my time this morning unpacking the incredible news of those verses, but I want to backtrack for a second and address two false images or pictures of God so we can understand why those two verses have such incredible news, okay? The first false image says this, God is unhappy with everything we do. This false image depicts God as if God is displeased and dissatisfied with us no matter what we do, no matter how good or righteous or just it is. God, in this image, is like a teacher standing behind your shoulder during a test, gasping each time you circle the wrong answer. In this depiction, God is like that roommate who comes in after you've cleaned the house, the apartment for hours right, and notices the tiny speck of dust you missed and says, you missed a spot. This image of God makes God out to be a cruel judge who willfully ignores any good that you do and whose vision is distracted by the smallest of errors. The other image of God depicts God as if God is happy, even thrilled with everything we do. This image makes God into a kind of cheerleader for us, always on the sidelines saying how great we are. This image makes God into a kind of heavenly grandfather who cannot see any of the bad in his grandchildren. And both of these images on the screen make God blind. One image pictures a God who is blind to the good, and the other image pictures a God who is blind to the bad. And the Bible corrects both of these false images. This morning, we're going to talk about 
how both of these images are corrected. But I believe that this topic is so important because of two temptations that we face. One temptation is that in the Christian life, we can settle for mediocrity because of God's high standards. We think, well, we can never really please God. The best we're going to do is get a D on our heavenly report card, so I guess we'll just settle for milk toast. We'll settle for what's terrible, what's subpar. We'll settle for mediocrity because God has high standards. God could never really say to us, well done, my good and faithful servants. So if it's impossible to please God, we'll just shrug and accept defeat ahead of time. The opposite temptation is to presume God's approval by downplaying God's standards. Well, God couldn't have that high of expectations for us. No matter what we'll do, we'll be fine. I mean, I know He wants us to be holy, but certainly He'll lower the bar for us. Instead of going down these two roads, instead of believing in these two temptations, I want us to look at God head-on in this passage so that we don't fall for either of these temptations, okay? So, if you have a Bible, a physical Bible, we're going to go back to Romans chapter 8. Uh, if you have a black Bible that you see in the Purex in front of you, we, we actually know what page it's on. It's on page 916. If you have a Bible app on your phone, you can go there too, okay? Romans chapter 8. Paul has just written in chapter 7 that when we are outside of Christ, we are stuck in our sin, okay? We can't help ourselves. We're slaves to sin, Sometimes we think about the word sin as a kind of reference to a minor mistake you make here and there, but the way Paul talks about sin, it's like it has a capital S. Capital S sin is like this power. It's like gravity or magnetism. It just keeps pulling us down and down even when we want or know what the right thing is. But Paul begins chapter 8 by saying that there is really good news for those who are in Christ, those who are united to Jesus. He says, therefore... There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death, okay? The word law is used in many different ways in this letter, but one, one very rare uh, use for Paul, he, I don't think he ever uses it, is referencing like civil law or the laws of a country. In this since he's talking about law as a kind of controlling power, okay? So he says, through Christ Jesus, the law, the power of the Spirit gives life and sets you free from this other controlling power of sin and death, okay? When we were on the trajectory of sin, we were headed to death, spiritual death, disconnection from God, but through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, we have a new power at work in our lives. Now, before this chapter, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit just a couple of times. In this chapter alone, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit over 20 times. He is talking about God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and he is saying, this Spirit, when it's at work in your life, it deals life and freedom to you. Then, he talks about a law that is powerless. In the next verse, he says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
to be a sin offering. Okay, now he's switching what he's talking about. He was talking about the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of sin, but now he's talking about a different law. He's talking about the Torah, the law of Moses that God gave to Israel. And he says that that law, the Torah, is powerless to save us, not because it's evil, not because it's wicked, but because of our fallen human nature, because, he says, it was weakened by the flesh. The Torah can't save fallen humanity, and so what God did instead was send His Son. If the Torah can't do it, His Son can. So God's Son, Jesus, came to us with our same human nature, He says, in the likeness of sinful flesh, in order to offer himself as an offering for our sin. So in the Old Testament, they made all sorts of animal sacrifices to cover over or forgive or atone for sin. In Jesus' life, his offering covers over our sin, forgives our sin, atones for our sin. Paul goes on and says, God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. Now, this is very hard to imagine. It's hard to comprehend. But if sin was like a a weight that you could carry on your shoulders, Jesus gathered up the weight of all the sins of the world and bore it on his shoulders. If sin was like a virus you could trap in a body, it's like he took the virus of sin in his bloodstream and then cured the virus. It's hard for us to understand, but God condemns sin in the flesh of Jesus. And then in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. I want us to say those four words that are bolded and underlined out loud together. Fully met in us. Okay, when I have read Romans in the past, I would have assumed that the righteous requirement of the law, the Torah, might be fully met in Jesus. Of all the people who could fully meet the law, who could fulfill the law, I would think It's Jesus. So why does Paul say that he died and offered up his life as a sacrifice for sin, that the righteous requirement of the law would be fully met in us, the church, Christians, followers of Jesus? How is that possible? Well, Paul says an immense change happens when you receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, we're going to put these two columns next to each other. This is kind of a a side-by-side look of what Paul says happens when you receive the Holy Spirit from verses 6 through 8, okay? So outside of the Holy Spirit, when you don't have the Holy Spirit, he says you live according to the flesh. That's your fallen human nature. He says your mind is set on what the flesh desires. It leads to death. It makes you hostile to God. You do not and cannot submit to God's law. And then finally, on the bottom left corner, you cannot please God. But then, when when you do receive the Holy Spirit, you live according to the Holy Spirit. Now your mind changes. It is set on what the Spirit wants. Not what your fallen human nature wants, what the Holy Spirit wants. You receive life and peace. But then finally you start to think about the implications of what Paul is saying in verses 6 through 8, and you realize that 
what he's implying is that when you have the Holy Spirit, you're not hostile to God anymore. You're, you have a kind of friendship with God. You can and do submit to God's law, and you can please God. In the next verses, Paul says, you are controlled not by the flesh, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. I want to be clear, there is a massive change that happens when we receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a feeling. The Holy Spirit is not some mystical abstract concept. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And one of the great declarations of the Christian faith is that when you have faith in Jesus and you're baptized in His name, you receive the Holy Spirit. And this is the massive change that happens when you do. Now, if Jesus' body is still in a tomb somewhere in the land of Israel, this verse is false, this chapter is false, turns out the whole New Testament is false. But if Jesus is alive right now in heaven, and if the Spirit of God lives in all of those who belong to Jesus, then all of these changes are real. The Holy Spirit actually gives us life and peace. The Holy Spirit actually makes us good from the inside out. He actually enables us to fulfill the righteous requirement of the Torah, and He actually makes us people who can please God. Now, if that idea sounds crazy to you, it would have been even crazier at the time. Imagine to be a Jew in the first century to picture Gentiles people who aren't the children of Abraham, being able to fulfill the righteous requirements of the Torah. But that's actually what's been happening for the past 2,000 years in all of church history. The Holy Spirit has indwelt us and enabled us to please God. This is the truth that we're talking about this morning. Because He lives, we can please God. This is why Romans 8 corrects both false pictures of God that we started with. God is not our cheerleader saying, you're great no matter what you do. He's not our heavenly grandfather who can't see our faults. If we live in the realm of the flesh according to our fallen human nature, we can't please God. And I, I know that might seem harsh, but doesn't it make sense that if we don't trust Jesus, if we put God at arm's length, that we're always making sure that there's some distance between us and our Creator, that God would be displeased with that. That God wouldn't be thrilled that we rejected the one that He sent to save us. If we're in the flesh, outside of the Holy Spirit, we can't please God. But on the other hand, when we're united to Christ, when we receive His Holy Spirit, we're truly able to please God. He's not the teacher standing over our shoulder always looking for errors. He rejoices when His Spirit works in us so that we do good. He is a just judge. He knows exactly the good we've done by the Holy Spirit and exactly the evil we've done by the flesh. Nothing more and nothing less. 
This truth applies to our lives as individual Christians. This is so important because sometimes we think that the only actions that really please God are the bold ones, right? We think of famous saints like Francis of Assisi or Mother Teresa, and we say, oh, they gave up everything to serve the poor. They probably please God, but not me. Normal Christians, we're all just doomed to boring deeds that God isn't very thrilled with. This week, I was reading about this saint, Saint Zita of Luca. And I was waiting for some epic story. I love reading stories of saints because they always do something incredible by the end of the story. At 12 years old, Saint Zita became a housekeeper for a rich family in Italy. And every day she went to church and prayed. She gave generously to the poor. She visited the sick. For a while, the family and other servants were kind of annoyed by how religious she was. But she stayed consistent and loving to all that she knew. And after 48 years of service in this family, she died. That's the whole story. I was waiting for something epic. I was waiting for something impressive. Because sometimes we think the only thing that could ever please God is something like what St. Francis of Assisi did or what Mother Teresa did. But no, no, no. She's a saint too. Because for 50 years, she served and loved She pleased God. Pleasing God is not limited to eye-catching works. We can please God by loving our kids and honoring our father and mother and worshiping God at church. Therese of Lisieux once said, Our Lord does not look so much at the greatness of our actions nor even at their difficulty as at the love with which we do them. I also think that this morning sermon should impact this church as a whole. Most of you know that we're considering three different proposals for our future, and I I can't say this enough. Whatever path we choose will be difficult, but that path isn't doomed to fail. I don't want us to say, you know, I know this proposal is lackluster, but nothing could please God in the end, so let's do it anyways. We can really reach the end of this process and do good in God's sight. We can please the Lord. I don't think we're doomed to fail. But this is also so important, I want to be sure to put these words up on the screen. First of all, whatever path we choose will be difficult, but the path is not doomed to fail. And, put this next one up, we can't be so paralyzed by best possible scenarios, that we do nothing. I read this fantastic little book this week called Prudence, Choose Confidently and Live Boldly. And at first, I thought it was going to be way too self-helpy for me, but I was totally wrong. This author was, was so, so helpful. He writes this tiny little book, and one of the chapters was called Am I Certain? And he starts off by saying, you know, Having explored a few options when you're making practical decisions in life, aren't you bound to wonder if the best may be found elsewhere? Now, in the book, he gives examples about marriage, right? Often a a couple will be considered, you know, they're considering to get married or get engaged, and they start thinking, well, have I found the best possible person? But I started to think about our church, and he says this. This is so beautiful. He says, this doesn't mean... We're always searching for a single correct answer. 
Prudence or wisdom isn't bound to a hypothetical best possible state of affairs. One seeks to identify the best, but it may not always present itself. He goes on to say, morality is not a science. Human life is too complex for that. If only the hypothetical best possible solution were sufficient, you couldn't ever be certain you had happened upon it. Making a choice isn't like a math problem. And then this last quote in bold, it was so liberating to me to read this this past couple of weeks. He says, all you get in practical matters in the day-to-day life is the uncertain certainty of prudence. And I know that that quote might sound defeatist, that we're never going to get a perfect proposal for our church, but I find this so liberating. This This enables us to discern our options and then decide one to think through all of the possible futures and then pick one without being paralyzed by hypotheticals. We need, we need to think through all of the different proposals we have in front of us as a church, and we need to pick one. And we may only get the uncertain certainty of prudence. But that's the situation we're in. I know that advice from this book might sound too loose or flexible, but I think the reason why I found this so liberating is because of what Paul says about being led by the Holy Spirit. In verses 12 and 13, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh. It's not to live according to our fallen human natures. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Holy Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. He goes on to say, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. The Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Okay, let me reiterate what I've been saying this morning. Because Christ lives, He pours out His Holy Spirit on us. And if we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can truly please God, which means at this church, we've got to exercise prudence. We don't want to be trapped by perfectionism. We don't want to wait around for the best possible hypothetical scenario. That's going to paralyze us. We'll wait for all eternity. But prudence... That virtue that we're talking about this morning is not the same as pleasing people. Our elders have an immense responsibility on their shoulders, and we can't ask them to be people pleasers. In Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Whatever the elders discern here, I don't want them to be people pleasers. I don't want them to try to win my approval or win the approval of friends. I want them to be servants of Christ, trying to please God because it's possible. We're not doomed to fail here. But finally, I don't want to be presumptuous. I don't want us to be so casual that we assume all the options are just fine. 
that God will surely be happy with whatever we choose. That's just a recipe for sidelining hard questions. We need to address every question head on with good answers. And it is my conviction that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can please God at this church. And it's not because of our own willpower. It's not because of our own intelligence. It's not because of anything on our own. It's because He lives. We can please God. I want to say these seven words out loud together because we believe it, okay? Because He lives, we can please God. That's possible here at this church. Last week we said because He lives, we can press on. This week we say because He lives, we can please God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for you to be with us as we consider all of these proposals at this church. We need prudence. We need wisdom. We need discernment. We know that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can please you. You could say to us at the end of this process, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we ask that this whole church would be servants of Christ, that we wouldn't try to be people pleasers, that we wouldn't be perfectionists, but that also we would never presume upon your favor, that we would seek out to the best of our ability what you would have for this church. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.